0: when Jesus enters the world as as the Word, as the same Word that spoke the world in the being, the same Word who was the active agent of, of all of creation, he puts a demand on language that no one else can because he has, he has proprietary ownership of it. It means that our uses of language are either dignified by their glorying of Jesus, so if we've channeled those words in the direction of glorying Jesus, whether that's explicitly or implicitly through liturgy and praise, or through letters and and words which are grounded and founded in in the glory of God, even if they're not talking about Him, then we're we're stewarding well what He owns. Welcome to The Habit Podcast,
1: conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Andrew Roycroft is a poet and a pastor in Northern Ireland. His new collection, 33, consists of 33 poems, each 33 words long, Meditating on the life and the words of Jesus from the Gospel of John, plus thirty-three essays about the thirty-three poems. Andrew Roy Croft, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Uh, to talk about your new collection of poems 33, subtitled Reflections on John's Gospel. Yeah,
0: uh, thanks for having me, Jonathan. Lovely yeah. it, love it to see you again. Yeah.
1: So this is a collection of thirty-three Thirty-three word poems. Mm. So mm. that's nine hundred and ninety-nine words.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm glad you kept it under under a <laughs> thousand, <laughs> with a little bit tagged on at the back for for uh, oh that's and, true yeah content so right, yeah okay. but yeah very very brief poems yeah.
1: <laughs> um, it, t- you didn't invent this format. Mm. Tell me about the history of thirty-three word not just 33 word poems 33 33
0: word poems yeah well i encountered it in um Dermot mcculloch's history of the reformation um and i mean as someone whose background was medieval studies i find his capture of medieval piety and all of that pre-reformation to be really interesting because i think there's there's generally an assumption that spirituality true spirituality began in 1517 um whereas when you go back into the medieval period there's a really rich um uh, spiritual experience, spiritual disciplines that, that were far from maybe the excesses that the Reformation faced into. Um, and Dermot McCulloch has this lovely section in his book on the Reformation where he's in no hurry uh, to get the Luther and he allows you to marinate in sort of medieval piety. Um, and there was something there that just really caught my attention, which was this idea that in the medieval period, um, prayers would have been written in poetic form. They would have been written uh, with just 33 words and those 33 words then were designed to reflect one word for each year of Christ's life. Mm. And I think it being the medieval church, that corresponded to to sort of touchable and tangible things like beads that then could be used to mm-hmm. work through those 33 years. So that really sparked it off my head because it, it combined all sorts of interests, poetry, the life of Christ, um, and the sort of medieval element of of good piety, good, good spiritual pursuit. So yeah, that's where it sort of, the kind of Germanate, but it seems to have been a, an established pattern of writing and praying and, and devotion in uh-huh. the medieval
1: period. So your collection is a collection of, of meditative poems on mm-hmm. the book of John. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um why John? How did you how did you uh settle on that gospel as your subject matter?
0: Yeah, when I began to to, to think through the background of what Dermot McCulloch had shared I began to think about the idea of well could I begin to write contemporary poems that embrace that discipline of 33 and I suppose a process of refinement I began to think about the gospels broadly should I just select episodes out of Christ's life that felt very general Mm -hmm. and it felt a little bit like I I perhaps wouldn't um honour the the generic priorities of each of each gospel, you know, the preoccupations of each writer. Mm -hmm. So I began to think, well, look, if I took one gospel and began to write poems based on that, where would I go? And immediately John seemed like a good fit. Um, His language is so vivid, it's so theologically Mm -hmm. loaded. Um, His his ruminations in the life of Christ are so um, deep and quite often suggestive as well, which I think is a good space for poetry to work in. So I, I began to tinker around just Taking the page of the Bible and beginning little poetry sketches, and find yes, actually there's so much imagery here. And for 33 poems, it allows you to import some of John's work. So mm-hmm. if there's allusions or rich metaphor, you can borrow that, which allows the reader to explore that through John and, and see that enriched without having to say too much more about it yourself. So there's a a kind of a, a horde of of words mm. and ideas and metaphors that were already there because of John's style. So that seemed like a seemed like a good fit to. To go yeah. for it. When you say his language is suggestive, what's mm. what's an example of, of that kind of suggestiveness that you have? Yeah, I mean, I think th- there's these enigmatic statements of Jesus, you know, in the Gospels, which in, in John's Gospel, which very often are met with either incredulity or misunderstanding or misappropriation mm-hmm. by the people who hear them at first. So, you know, a prime example of that would be the I am statements. You mm-hmm. know, Um, Jesus doesn't prosaically say, this is what I mean, (laughs) um, but he metaphorically says, this is what I am. And it's often in an abstraction that doesn't make a lot of sense until you reverse engineer it back into the Old Testament or you um, begin to really think about the implications of that. So, you know, I am the bread of life. Um, The idea of that linking into manna in the wilderness and the whole Mm. biblical theological context of Jesus' life. You know that very terse, short statement captures that. Or um, even his encounter with with Martha uh, when Lazarus has passed away. You know, I am the resurrection and the life, mm-hmm. and Martha trying to unpack that in the in the context of trauma. Jesus mm-hmm. brings metaphor into that world, which is something we don't generally tend to do. So mm-hmm. it seems to me that John has selected and celebrated those elements where Jesus was. Linguistically profound and conceptually profound as well. I and mean, I suppose another example would be the, the temple, you know, destroy this house and I'll rebuild it in three days. Um it's just so poetically loaded, it's theologically loaded, and it's fully misunderstood by the people who <laughs> yeah. hear it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a poem. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't it? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you, in the, at the end of the book, you have the the meditations, um, the the prose meditations on on the poems. Mm and you you comment at one point that the the I am statements of Jesus are compact poems uh, you call them atomic truths that burst into real hope when we probe them mm. and i i love that idea that the the I am statements are compact poems mm. um mm. and you i guess you've already you've already touched on this idea that that they are um un, you know they're, they they are they can be unpacked sometimes? People around Jesus did not unpack them, and sometimes they did, mm-hmm. or sometimes they they misunpack them, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, yeah. that is striking what you said that that moment of grief, um, he is still speaking in metaphor instead yeah, of,
0: uh, yeah, it's incredible. You know, it's, um, I suppose one of the, the things that poetry does is that it's a little bit like water, it shapes the environment that it moves in, you know, and mm. I think about contemporary poets who um, whose poetry about the place where I live, for instance, has formed how I think and see and parse that landscape. Huh. Um, I can think, I mean, a hero of mine, Seamus Heaney, you know, we have um, we have no prairies to slice a big sun at evening, he talks about the the boglands, <laughs> that's just, that's it, when you see that territory it's Linguistically captured, or um, he talks about he says, I shouldered a kind of manhood stepping in to lift the coffins of dead relations. And every time I'm at a funeral, those words I shouldered a kind of manhood when I stepped in to lift the coffins of dead relations. And I think the I am statements do that too, they give us a retrospective on the revelation that has been already given in the Old Testament, mm. but they give us a new perspective. So, I, I think about. Funerals I conduct as a pastor, a favorite, the favourite passages in John's Gospel for people in grief are the most richly metaphorical. I am the resurrection, i the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And people find in what were originally abstractions in Jesus' language a shape for their experience that I think verbalises it or gives it a vocabulary, which I suppose is what powerful poetry is supposed to do. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You, you. I love that
1: language of the, that that metaphor. Gives us a a retrospective way of understanding what has gone before, as well as a, a new perspective going forward. It 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 makes me think about the very first poem of mm-hmm. this collection, um, where you you really are hitting hard the the idea of what it means for for um, Jesus to be the the Word made flesh and. Um, and at one point you say all former words will now deliver their long pregnant p- promise.
0: Mm, mm,
1: mm. Uh, I love that so much. This idea that the, that the word made flesh and dwelling among us, as you said, reaches back into the new Testament. I'm sorry, the old Testament and says, here's what, um, you know, here was the, the long pregnant promise. Yeah. In those words.
0: Yeah. I think there's, you know, the, the, we take words for granted don't we you know words are what we use they're just they're here um and i suppose john in the opening of 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 his gospel re-establishes the fact that that god is the lord of language and that language is the very mechanism that he uses to create a universe mm, yeah um, and um therefore because christ is the word he becomes the grammar for all the words you know we we parse all reality through him now that's that's how we interpret everything and um i suppose for me that opening poem as in the opening prologue of john's gospel it's so rich theologically because it's you know bb warfield did that famous statement about the old testament he said it's a room richly furnished but dimly lit Mm. you know everything (laughs) is there it's just we need the new testament to flick the light switch and then we see oh this was here all the time and i suppose that that Wonderful phrase of Warfields was in my mind of of Christ just reinterprets all of this and what he says is consistent, it's in harmony with everything that's been revealed before, but it super reveals all that, doesn't it? You know, I guess that's
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh could you say another sentence or two about this idea that
1: that the word, you know, the, the word made flesh is is the grammar for parsing all the other words? Mm-hmm. Um I that's not quite self-explanatory. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So I suppose I suppose we we who owns who owns language would be a question that I'm interested in because we steward language. You know, my parents they carry stewardship to pass on a language to me, which I then pass on to others. And so we're borrowers. Everything that we're talking about today is borrowed currency. I don't own any of it. It has mm. been Mm-hmm. Handed to me, I have to bank it and entrust it then to to my children. So, if we trace that right back to its source, all that language is emanating from from God Himself. So, the moment when when Jesus enters the world as as the Word, as the same Word that spoke the world into being, the same Word who was the active agent of of all of creation, He puts a demand on language that no one else can because He has. Um, his has proprietary ownership of it. You know, there's almost a little copyright sign beside language that says, you know, <laughs> this is the intellectual property of Jesus Christ. You know, <laughs> so it means then our uses of language are either dignified by their glorying of Jesus. So if we've channeled those words in the direction of glorying Jesus, whether that's explicitly or implicitly through liturgy and praise or through letters and, and words, which are, um, which are grounded and founded in, in the glory of God, even if they're not talking about him, mm-hmm. then we're we're stewarding well what he owns. But likewise, if Jesus is the word, if he is the spoken principle of God from which sort of the singularity from which all other languages exploded and continue to expand into the into the universe of words, then he has the right then to rebuke forms and uses of language mm-hmm. too. He can both direct and command and correct and condemn language because mm. its his I just find that fascinating that it's yeah. his his property yeah um, I you, you saying that makes me think of
1: something that that I heard one of actually one of your countrymen John Lennox mm. say uh that the the a fundamental difference between a theistic view of a, a theistic understanding of the world not not doesn't have to be specifically Christian although as we've as you've been discussing there's a, a particularly Christian a specifically Christian way of understanding this. But mm-hmm. let's just start with theistic and atheistic. Um in a theistic uh understanding of, of the universe, mm-hmm. word I'm sorry, mind gives rise to matter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And mm-hmm. in a an atheistic view, matter has to give rise to mind. Wow. And um that's
0: a pretty interesting yeah and helpful distinction. Yeah, that's powerful to help come across up for John. That's that's amazing. Actually, yeah. Yeah. That that ev- everything you see mm. if if you're a theist
1: started with somebody's idea, started with God's idea. Mm-hmm. And um and that I think that's very relevant to the work that poets and, and other writers do to say we're we're sort of uh as we as we give voice to the the world around us, we're we're putting it back into
0: language when it started as language and idea and, and,
1: and that, yeah that sort of thing. It's really
0: that's wonderful, Jonathan. I haven't haven't thought that through, and that's that's tremendous because that's a you know those are two diametrically maybe opposed, too strong word, but diametrically different ways of viewing everything, all reality, yeah. um, actual reality, and articulated reality, and it blurs those lines a little bit too, doesn't it? In terms of yeah. The power of words and and where they come from, yeah, that's that's amazing. I'd love to think about that more. Yeah,
1: right. Well, I, I one thing I like about that distinction is it's it is um, it's not especially judgmental. It's just sort of a, a it's it's not it's not even saying uh, well, it's, it's it's a way of talking about the difference between a theistic and an atheistic view that that's not specifically moral. Yeah, um, yeah, certainly. but it's just kind of. Uh, Anyway, That's uh, wonderful. Um, moving on. Well, the when you you also you said that it retroactively, hmm. the word retroactively makes sense of all the words that went before. Hmm. And then moving forward gives us a new perspective on everything that. That, that we see, as you said, uh, it's like water. It shapes the environment that we move in. Hmm. Um and when you said that i thought about another one of your your poems um and also your meditation on that poem
0: mm.
1: which is the one about um the shepherd and the and the sheep and the wolves yeah um and specifically you know as, as you said in in um in funerals people take comfort in the idea that that metaphor of um of the Christ being the way, the truth, and the life. And and um another metaphor that people take comfort in, in funerals mm-hmm. is the Lord is my shepherd. Yeah. And we have a specific way of, that we typically think about that, this sort of gentle care. And as you uh rightly uh point out, the shepherd isn't just gentle, you know, it's it's, it's the shepherd um sort of lives at that line between Danger and comfort, and um, and destruction and survival, and between chaos and compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love. I, I think, henceforth, when I think about the Lord as my shepherd, I, your poem mm-hmm. uh, will will shape the way I think about that image because oh, it, so it cool. is you know the the, the Psalm twenty three um, is for the most part a very gentle, or at least the way we, we talk about it is very gentle.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think we've I mean, certainly here when, when anyone has you know, we've got our favorite verses that go on the fridge or yeah, right. The living room or scattered around the house, you know. Generally the twenty third Psalm tends to get wheels in the background as in green grass wheels and sheep and rural and sort of bucolic paradise mm-hmm. um or, or an Irish an Irish field. Whereas I remember I remember doing some preaching on Psalm twenty three three years ago, and I can't remember who the commentator was, but he spelled out the reality of the valley of the shadow of death, you know, and he, he described the fact that the landscape and the territory that the shepherd was in, finding water, finding pasture, was the shepherd's skill. He wasn't in an abundant environment where ah. he just sort of lay and, and, and played the lute while the sheep grazed around. He was... <laughs> Much more like an infantry man, actually, you know, in terms of how he faced into that world. So, yeah, I think we've possibly domesticated that. And it's funny because the, the metaphor of Jesus as the good shepherd is immediately followed with the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Mm. In other words, the, the good shepherd's life is literally on the line. You know, this is a shepherd who's invested in the true care of his sheep um, is, is laying himself down. And I suppose that is maybe that is some resonances for our understanding even of shepherding now, as in spiritual shepherding, and maybe that's a massive subject to go into, but Hmm. the idea of sacrificial shepherding rather than shepherding that that fleeces the sheep is Uh is extremely live, I suppose, you know. Do you have uh, the
1: poems in front of you? Could you read that that poem? Would you read it?
0: That's number 12. Number 12. Yeah, that's fine. Keeping the Wolf from the Door the shepherd calls. Bringing in his own, he shames the unsigned staff of pilfering crooks who came before. Laying down, he rests, a flock into his care.
1: I love it. As I said, that that poem and your subsequent meditation, your prose meditation on that um, is going to continue to shape how I think about that image, the Lord is my shepherd. So thank Uh you
0: for that. Thanks, John. That's very kind. Um, okay. You've already
1: touched on this idea that John, the Apostle John, is, is preoccupied with the idea of Jesus being misunderstood, his language being misunderstood. Mm. Um, and it is striking, his willingness to be misunderstood. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah. it's, it's seeming... You know courting misunderstanding, yeah, um mm-hmm. and i what's i am I'm trying to say something that I want you as a poet to respond to mm. um and it's i i I read a lot more prose than than poetry, I guess most people do, probably poets do too, I guess, but um. I find poetry exhausting, <laughs> and uh, I when I've done the work to make sense of it, I'm really glad I did. But it's very common for me just to kind of think. I mean, even in, even in your book, I was like when I got to the the prose meditations, I was like, okay, this is so much easier <laughs> because it's easy. It, it, I don't it. I don't know if it's as true to say it's easy to, to misunderstand your mm-hmm. poems, but I will say it's hard to understand yeah. the poems, whether or not they're easy to misunderstand. They're definitely harder to y- – your meditations at the end of the book are much much more accessible. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: and that's not a secret. I mean, you, you know that, right? Mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think that was one of the reasons why the prose meditations felt like a good complement to the poems because the poems are that kind of work out verbally and mentally and then hopefully some sort of sidelight on it. Yeah, I think I think poetry so I, I guess there's a couple of ways of, of looking at that. You know, if, if poetry attempts to be complex, it just becomes
1: mm.
0: useless and yeah. academic. You know, you, you think even in prose of of James Joyce, you know, mm-hmm. James Joyce at his very best allowed himself to use language that was remarkable, extraordinary, stretching the the limits of what a human being could write and what a human being can read, but it it affected something. You know, when you read it, there's a a correspondence between those words and reality that with the hard work enriches the reality. But I think some of his other work he wrote just to be deliberately obscure and arcane and elusive and annoying. Um, And uh, I think Poetry that's complex for the sake of being complex, it does a disservice to the reader. It breaks the vital contract between reader and writer, doesn't it, that, that I'm going to converse with you via this medium about the things that matter. But poetry that's that's dealing with complex issues, I think it's designed to slow us right down,
1: mm.
0: really make us deliberate and, and think I think particularly the 33 poems because of the density of just a 33 word capture of something that's larger than the universe. Um, (laughs) You know, it it really makes you slow down. Um, Some, some poems, I think, you know, these are different poems and other poetry I'd write really different. Other poetry I think sometimes slows you down after you've read it. It's a bit Uh like the, it's a bit like the fighter jet landing on the deck of the, the aircraft carrier, you know, it moves at speed and then gets caught on a hook and is pulled back. And I think some poems do that for you. I mean, Emily Dickinson would do that for me—that you read it so super simple and then suddenly you're being <laughs> back again. You go, oh goodness, there's so so much more in there. Whereas I think these poems, which are deliberative and meditative and contemplative, they do make us slow down at the start. They, they mm. take they take time to read, and yeah, I think I think given the I think given the skim and scroll culture we're in now, mm. um, a poem that makes us slow down is going to feel very counter-cultural. It's going to feel like landing in a different country. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know that in any way talks about what you mentioned, Jonathan. I've, I've, uh, I've managed to yeah. exhaust my own brain even talking about poetry. So, <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, Well, I, I, I like that idea of poetry making us feel like we're in a different country. You know, the one job of the writer is to is to clarify and to make make ideas accessible. Mm. But another job of a writer is to is to make things seem a little foreign. Yeah. 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 I mean, talk about Emily Dickinson. You know, she so many of her poems where she's writing about something that that is common enough but she by making it seem foreign she makes you look at something you haven't been paying attention to yeah yeah um, and um and i i love that function of Ooh. of poetry i say i love
0: it <laughs> <laughs> i love it eventually a qualified love jonathan yeah <laughs> <laughs> it is
1: it is not a uh, um yeah, it's good uh, grief. what's what's the kind of love? that unconditional love, that's, that's yeah
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think that that um, it's interesting because poetry is so uh, in such a different realm than what I would do normally with words, which is preaching. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. preaching is very often taken an extremely complicated set of ideas that are deeply contextualized in a world totally other than our own whether that's new testament or particularly old testament and honoring the the curation of that previous moment that previous culture not not stripping out of that but keeping it in it mm. and then bringing that into the world of the hearer so that it's comprehensible and also applicable so preaching is mm. almost it's almost like the reverse of what sometimes a poem can do it's yeah. it's bringing the dance and making it plain where sometimes um, Poetry—I wouldn't say poetry seeks to make things be dense, but it takes the plane and makes it complex or observable, mm-hmm. or um, as you say, that idea of, of distancing and 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 disorientating the reader, and then finally reorientating reorienti- them into a, into another understanding. Yeah, that's so interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, it's sort of the difference between, or it can be the difference between distilling and unfolding. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and so especially when you're writing 33 word poems, <laughs> there's a lot of distillation there.
0: Yeah. And
1: uh, I, I I'm so interested in the way that you manage to to include so many ideas um in so few words. Uh you've already mentioned the 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 bread. You know, you, you wrote a poem about the bread of life, and uh yeah. it's the one that starts um uh this loaf king whom we would crown just for crusts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, talking about the, the speaking of people misunderstanding what, what Jesus was up to, you know, as he fed the 5,000 or, mm-hmm. you know, the, or the 4,000 and anytime he, he fed people, you know, they, there was this sense that, that, oh, okay, this is a, this is a, uh, a, a man is bringing economic relief to, to the hungry <laughs> or, um, yeah. and, um, and jesus refusing to be crowned merely the the you know economic savior um, yeah. and eventually you know we're talking about manna by the time this 33 word poem is over and, and it you know it takes me 33 sentences I mean, my, that sentence took more than 33 words you know <laughs> <laughs> and you and you had a, a few more ideas in there yeah those and and so that distillation that, that concentration that Compactness um, Mm. is a very, as you said, a very different thing from you preaching for, say, you know, twenty five minutes, thirty five minutes on a couple of verses. Well, you are
0: Baptist, so you probably preach fifty (laughs) five (laughs) minutes. In my dreams, in my dreams. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I think there is that, and I think that again, it comes back to you know. So we've talked a little bit about misunderstanding and that happens loads. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Jesus Jesus always insists on in coming back to the to the to the root of what these words mean. Mm. So, you know, the, the the likes of the 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 Love King poem about you know that they would just make him king to 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 get bread and get supplies that economic savior. Jesus wants to to reinvest mana with what it really meant. Mm. Um and that material provision with what it really meant. And so it's interesting. I don't think Jesus was ever um obviously he wasn't, but we could never, I think, misunderstand him as being deliberately obscure or shifting meaning in a kind of a postmodern mm. way that he would destabilize meaning. Jesus was insisting on restabilizing that meaning back in its original context and any instability that brought was the instability of correction rather than disorientation. Oh, yeah, you, you know that he's that he's insisting that this has a true meaning, which in our culture is so interesting because we have when I was a, when I was an undergrad and postgrad, you know, meaning was up for grabs, meaning was was decentralised, it was pulled out of any meta narrative, yeah. and we we've applied that across the civic, the judicial, the political, the, yeah. Medical realm, and now people are coming back and longing that things would be re-centralized, but only through that destabilizing experience. You know what I mean? So I think, yeah, Jesus is is permanently insisting that that the needle returns to true north, yeah. Uh, um, again, that in in many ways glorifies him because it it points him up as the word again, the the originating uh, word, the the sort of the magnetic center of what meaning actually is. So. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I'm I appreciate your saying that because when when I a few minutes ago I said you know Jesus didn't mind being misunderstood and I love that clarification, he was willing to be misunderstood because we have our own preconceived notions of how we're gonna understand things. And and when somebody tells it straight, it seems upside mm. down.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, which again You know, as long as we're, since we've been talking about Emily Dickinson, you know, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Yeah. Um, A lot of that is um, what Jesus was up to, Mm -hmm. poets like you are up to. Thankfully, there are people, you know, like me who write prose who can come along and and, (laughs) straighten it out
0: for everybody. You can sweep the streets after the party, Jonathan. That's right. That's true. After
1: you, people like you are so, uh, yeah, wild and throwing things around. <laughs> um, that's so good. Um, all right. Well, let me let me ask you a question that I, I'm I, I'm looking forward to hearing your answer to my customary question: Who are the writers that
0: make you want to write? Mm. I think. Um... There'd be a few, one from poetry, from secular poetry, would be Seamus Heaney, that's sort yeah. of the, 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 the... I was going to be sad of, if, if uh, he didn't come up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Heaney, again, you talk about distillation, you know, Heaney, um, for me, was the first, an encounter with Heaney's language is the first time in my life that I realised just what words could do. I didn't understand mm-hmm. all of it, but mm-hmm. it was amazing to me. We had an English teacher called Mr. Martin, I went to an all boys high school that was pretty uncultured very uncouth <laughs> and mr martin was a great guy because he was a he had the common touch but he also was deeply in love with literature and i remember the first occasion that he um read seamus heaney his poem digging in class oh, i guess you remember the the sensory experience of being in a warm room after lunchtime as a schoolboy. you know in my uh. kind of brittle that weird material they make school jumpers out of when I was growing up, you know, and this kind <laughs> sort of experience and those words penetrating all that kind of lethargy, and realizing there's a whole world here. So Heaney, for me has done that over and over again. He did it then, he did it through my student days. He's done it. He has formed how I see the world I live in, and I think mm-hmm. that's so inspiring about writing. The only problem is, that setting somebody like Henny as an inspiration to write is just a humiliating experience. Because yeah, right. Yeah. yeah so hey, I've Heaney, got a quick question about about uh Heaney and you
1: is it to what extent is the fact that he is uh from Northern Ireland mm. how important is that to you that, that his native
0: tongue is the same as yours yeah Do you have anything to say about that yeah I think I think it, there is that sense of probably that that stage in my teens when I heard him first the place names the turn of the language was so different. I was I grew up in the was born in the 1970s, grew up in the nineteen eighties, you know. Yeah. And I don't mean this as any despite, but, you know, media culture was highly Americanized then. Yeah. And then living in Northern Ireland, even local media tended to be highly Anglicized. Mm. Um, and so you never heard anyone really talk in your own tongue uh, yeah. or your own turn of phrase and place names, you know, and areas that you're familiar with. You know, I remember hearing someone on the radio one day saying, "You know, Americans have all the best place names because they get more syllables." You know, like Alabama. And- <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, um, but somebody like Haney writing about Loch Ness, which is literally fifteen minutes from where I'm sitting right now, yeah. um, for him to write about the Ards Peninsula, this great phrase he says, "The sky is big as over a runway." Huh. You know, and and then you drive, you know, as a child then or a young person in the car driving and going, that's exactly how that's captured. It I- it. It, I suppose the way I put it is it, it localized poetry, but it poetized the locality. Oh, yeah, that's good. And I think that for me was just a meeting point of things I'd never heard before. And yeah. it, it became a kind of a gateway then into my dad worked in a coal yard in and in an oil company, didn't read poetry at all. But when oh. I'd got into Heaney, I remember from his 16th birthday, he took me to a bookshop in Belfast and bought me the contemporary book of Irish poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, in edition. I still have it now. It looks like somebody's kicked it up and down the yard a few times, but uh, <laughs> you know, that book for me was just a new world. And yeah. the vast majority of it was modern poetry that I didn't understand, but there was a sensory experience in there of the words and the... Yeah. Yeah, so Haney represented all of that. That's a hugely long answer, John, sorry. No, I, I, I was asking for it. <laughs> I had similar feelings about Flannery
1: O'Connor, who's from the same part of the world, is where i grew up and and that that what you said about poeticizing locality mm. you know the idea of of the peacock sort of sweeping along the sort of red clay hardscrabble landscape kind of i, I hear you about that sort of you know the the, this, the the bird of Hera also being the you know walking in middle georgia
0: meant a lot to me you know wow oh, that's beautiful
1: but anyway, you you keep going. We've got Seamus Heaney.
0: Yeah, I suppose another writer that that I find really inspiring, and it's maybe an unusual choice, is um is Warren Wiersbe. Okay. Um, I don't know how well known Warren Wiersbe is anymore at all, but he was the kind of staple of short Bible commentaries when I was growing up. You know, the uh-huh. first the first serious Christian book I read was a friend give me one of his little B commentary books on First Corinthians, and what Wiersbe did was he um He used language in a deeply servant-hearted way, and he he lowered the ramp of both language and biblical exegesis to a level where someone like me at 15 or 16 could get on board. And I think that has always inspired me, that um, writers who have functional strength as opposed to kind of bodybuilder writers who can show you their muscles, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I've always I've always loved that, and it's, maybe that's part of my upbringing, which was not in a literary environment
1: yeah.
0: as a child. But Wearsby to me just exemplifies um, the kind of the crucifixion of your own glory mm. in order to glorify the crucified one through your words. And um, I know poetry doesn't necessarily serve that purpose. Maybe I'm thinking even about other stuff that I would write that's more prosaic. But Mm -hmm. I found Wiersbe, and latterly in the last year, I've read, Wiersbe wrote a book called Preaching and Teaching with Imagination. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly realised that he had at his fingertips the world of literature. He was Mm -hmm. was a much more lettered man than anyone would give him credit for. And he could, with ease and a very natural tone, all that this conversation about imagination and i thought wow he he employed that without displaying that and i, I just wow. i love that i find that very inspiring
1: yeah
0: you know that all of this stuff that there is no division between language when you write a poem to try and slow down and provoke thought and when you write a sermon to try and elucidate and motivate and um inspire so yeah where's B would be and again it's such a it's such a i think that's a bit of a left field choice you know yeah. and, and should really be saying Ernest Hemingway, and <laughs> <you know. laughs> but Warren Wearsby, I, I just think is a great example of a of a of a crucified writer. You know, I just think that's,
1: that's yeah, that's great. You're the first person to mention Warren Wearsby on the Habit Podcast.
0: So. <laughs> we had some Warren Wearsby floating around the house when I was growing up too. Yeah, yeah, It's just really unusual. That I mean, in our local Bible college, it used to be you know that guys just readily this material, and, <laughs> you know, and then. I think that that put him out of out of currency for a bit, you know. But yeah, he's Duh. a bit of a hero.
1: Yeah. Well, great. Well, Andrew Roycroft, thank you so much for taking this time uh, to to talk about uh, this point. We haven't even we haven't even mentioned the the illustrations. Oh, please. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but oh. Yeah. Ned Bustard did such yeah. a great job of those, uh, those woodcuts or linocuts cuts or whatever they are. I guess they're lino cuts, probably. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: with that sort of, uh, Book of Kells style that, that he, yeah. that he does in so many, in, in, uh, so, uh, anyway, I, I love the book. Uh, I love your, your, your part of it. I love, uh, Ned's part of it. Love Malcolm Geith's introduc- uh, introduction or preface. So,
0: uh, so, thanks for doing this work. Oh, thanks, John, and thanks for having me today as well. It's been lovely to chat. Yeah, thanks definitely. for being yeah.
1: This podcast is brought to you by the Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.